You know, the other day I got into a great discussion uh, with a friend of mine, and we were discussing the geography of the Bible. So I think of it this way, unlike Disney stories that kind of feature these faraway places, magical lands, the stories of the Bible are actually set in real time and in real places. Places that sometimes are a little bit difficult to locate geographically. So I don't know if you ever thought about this, but if I were to ask you to take me, I'm just going to use this as an example. If I were to ask you to take me to the Garden of Eden right now, where would you take me ge geographically? So on the one hand, we, we do believe that the Garden, as described in Genesis, was a real place. It was a place here on Earth. Uh, it was Adam and Eve's home. And we also believe that place hasn't just disappeared off the earth. I mean, it's still here, right? Somewhere. But but where? Where would you take me if I wanted to go there? Is it in America? Uh, is it in Africa? Is it in, in South Asia? Where, where physically would you locate the Garden of Eden? And, and then there's the ark. So think about it this way with me. If I, if I were to say to you, where is the resting place of Noah's Ark. Uh, we, we believe he built the Ark as a big Ark, 1.5 football fields long. That's a big boat. We also believe, as the Bible tells us, that the Ark came to rest on the day that the waters of the flood receded. But, but where? So if I asked you right now to take me to that place, let's go see the place that the Ark came to rest, where, speaking geographically, would we go? And then there's that tower, the Tower of Babel. It's described in the book of Genesis chapter 11. You remember the story. Genesis 11 takes us to a place of homogeneity where the whole world spoke just one language. We're told that people migrated from the east into what was called the land of Shinar. Anyone know where Shinar is? It was there, of course, in Shinar, a plain, that technology was born. Man used fire to make bricks, learned how to use bitumen, which was an insolvable filler for mortar, and the building boom was on. The building project that man had in mind, however, wasn't a good one. You listen to the words of Genesis 11, verse 4. Remember these words? Uh, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So I don't know if you caught this, but men were building this city, this tower, pretty much in the face of God. They actually wanted to have the upper hand over him, lest he disperse them over the face of the earth. We will build our tower into the heavens and become our own God. So if you're listening, Shinar, Babel, does not sound like a very good place. So again, I'm just going to ask you, where is it? If I were to ask you to take me there today to, to the land of Shinar, where physically or geographically would you take me? So if you've ever studied biblical geography, there are theories towards all of these questions. Uh, in their book, Cyclopedia of Biblical, Theological, and Ecclesiastical Literature, John McClintock and James Strong walk readers through nine different theories relative, uh, for example, to the location 
of the Garden of Eden. Some theories, of course, more believable than others. The same is true for the resting place of the ark. Genesis 8 actually tells us that the ark of Noah came to rest in the mountains of Ararat, located in what is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, so we could go to Turkey, but the question is which specific mountain, as uh, the mountains of Ararat are actually numerous. So men have speculated which of those mountains was the mountain upon which the ark came to rest. There's even been, if you look back at history, people who claim to have found the ark or its artifacts. And yet, when you study it, their locations actually contradict one another. So we have theories, but we don't have an exact location, which leaves the tower. So, so let me ask again, do we know where the Tower of Babel is today? In today's podcast, I want to recognize with you that the remnants of Babel, like those of the garden or the ark, are to be found somewhere here on modern day earth. That is, unless they've been destroyed by the flood or volcanic eruption. But I also want to go a little bit further. I want to go so far as to recognize that there's a relationship between Babel, the place this tower was built, and the book that we've been studying, namely the book of Daniel. They're related. Babel, Babylon. They kind of sound related, right? But how? Today I want to connect those dots. Then I, then I want to go a little bit further yet. My primary goal today is to recognize that there actually is a sense in which it's not at all difficult to locate the Tower of Babel in our world today. Here's why. Because there's a sense in which Babel lives actually inside each one of us. I've always respected the way Martin Luther, the old reformer, expresses this. Luther said that inside of each human being there dwells an old man who unabashedly is building his or her tower into the heavens, declaring themselves to be the rightful ruler of their own kingdom. I think that's what I actually love about this transition from chapter 7 of Daniel into chapter 8. We're going to see two things here. One, we're going to meet our, our old Adam, that is our old man. Uh, we're going to meet our old man face to face, that part of me that's building the tower. But number two, we're also going to see God doing what God does best. God likes to tear towers down. And I want to look at uh, how he's doing that, uh, not only historically through the book of Daniel, but also in, in our lives today. So let me just tell you that one of the things that got me thinking about this topic is a word that I'd never heard before. So let me give it to you. The word is amortal. Um, I, I have no doubt all of us are familiar with the term immortal or eternal. Uh, most of us have grown up with that word. In fact, immortality is one of the great doctrines of actually many of the world's religions. Uh, Buddhists talk about it. They talk about the nature of life as eternal. Uh, while Buddhism does not technically embrace the idea of a personal God, they do see life as an ongoing and eternal stream of energy. The very nature of Buddhism is towards the striving for nirvana or that state of nothingness in which a person melts into an endless arc of energy. Then there's Hinduism. So in the theological system that makes up the Hindu faith, the doctrine of reincarnation imagines what? An endless succession of births and deaths. 
We're born, we live, we die, only to begin the cycle again and again. Once again, immortality. Then there's Mormonism. Mormonism, too, has its own unique posture towards eternity. For Mormons, the soul is eternal. At birth, a soul enters a body. Ultimately, those who've adhered to the Mormon faith will end up inheriting a planet in which males function as gods of their own planet. Once again, immortality. Now, I, I'm not a proponent of, of any of those particular religious systems, but I'm pointing out that all of them incorporate in some way the concept of immortality, as does our Christian faith. In, in the Christian doctrine, immortality, or, or the story of the Bible, is the story of what? An eternal God who has no beginning and no end. In creation, God has made man, both male and female, he made them, to be, what, eternal. The doctrine of eternity posits that our souls never die. They will live forever, as will our resurrected bodies. The question in Christianity is never if there is an eternity, but rather where. Where will you spend eternity? Those trusting in the work of Jesus, of course, are blessed to live forever on a new earth with Jesus, but... Those who have not trusted, they live forever, just in an ongoing and eternal state of separation from God. So what I'm saying is immortality or eternity is really not a new teaching uh, for any of us. But my question is this. Have you ever heard the concept of amortality applied to mankind? I'd never heard it. But the first, first time I became acquainted with the term, I was reading a book by Yuval Noah Hariri. And uh, his book is entitled Sapiens. By the way, his sequel to this book, Homo Deus, also contains this concept. So in his book, Harini traces what he calls the evolutionary journey of sapiens. Here he's expressing the theory that there was a turning point in mankind's evolution that separated man from other creatures. He describes this turning point as a leap in cognitive thinking, a point at which sapiens, in his mind, evolved from being an unordinary creature, just one amongst many, amongst those evolved on this planet, to becoming the only creature capable of complex abstract thought. So this leap, Hereri suggest accounts for the place of sapiens today. Namely, it is sapiens that stand at the top of the evolutionary life chain. But he asks, is it possible that we're witnessing today the next significant evolutionary leap in which Homo sapiens may become subordinate actually to a new form of sapien, namely one that is integrated with capacity of thought achieved through artificial intelligence. That's actually the question underneath Harari's book. Now, I, I don't subscribe to Harari's evolutionary theories. I, I myself am unapologetically a confessor of the biblical view of creationism, a six-day creation. Uh, I do, however, find one of his thoughts relevant to our topic today. In the course of talking about the evolution of cognitive thought within the species of sapien, Harari throws out this word, amortal. Again, I had never heard it. It led me almost immediately 
towards two thoughts. First of all was, well, what is that? What, what does the term amortal mean? And number two, I thought to myself, am I that out of it that I, I don't even know this term? It, it didn't sound like a new term or one exclusive to Harari. So where did it come from? Then let me add this. What does it have to do with Babel? The tower. So let me start with definition. What Harari means when he talks about the concept of amortality is, quote, the ability of sapiens through scientific process aided by artificial intelligence to reach a point in which science and medicine can eliminate death. I'm going to let that sink in for a minute. Amortality, according to Harari, is that point at which science and medicine are become capable uh, of removing all forms of biological threat to our human minds and bodies. Put simply, science and medicine will allow sapiens to live forever. We will be a mortal, a apart from mortal mortality or death. I Again, when I heard that, the biggest part of me just wanted to kind of jump back, like, are you serious? Is, is this a serious theory being posited? It actually turns out that it is. So if you're, if you're listening to me carefully, the, this question has to arise. Well, then what's the difference between being eternal and being eternal? So, so there is one. When you're eternal, nothing on, above, or under the earth has the capacity to end you. You will live forever, period. This is what is at the very heart of Christian theology. We, we teach eternity this way. The question is never, will you live forever? You, you will. That's a guarantee, biblically. The question is, where will you live forever? With God or separated from him? That's eternity. Amortality, however, suggests that through science and medicine, a state may be reached in which no biological cause for death exists. However, there are plenty of non-biological things that can kill you. You might walk out your door in the morning and be hit by a car and killed instantly. There's no medicine or scientific solution to death through, uh, through a car crashing into you or death through non-biological means. In fact, those who embrace amortality have, have this in common. They, they all reject the notion that there actually is a God or a place of existence apart from Earth or our known solar system. A mortality is, in effect, a tower built upon the platform of science and medicine that reaches into the heavens and says, We don't need God. We will be our own gods. Does that sound familiar to you? It should. You see, one of the things that's always intrigued me about Genesis 11 and the account of Babel has always been the, the, the way that this physical pursuit on the part of man to become their own God shows up time and time again in the hubris or pride of man's hearts. I don't know if you've ever studied Genesis 11 and death, but it's, to me, it's a fascinating study. It's, it, it's one that limits, I mean, it exceeds the limits of this podcast episode but I do encourage its study. 
While sites like Wikipedia focus on critical views of Babel, more conservative sites like Answers in Genesis, or for that matter, books like Flavius Josephus' Antiquities of the Jews, focus on the historicity of the city, its tower, and its connection to Babylon, the setting for the majority of Daniel's text. Now, I want to come to a close for this week. We're going to continue this next week. But here, here's what I want you to think about. Let, let's connect some dots this, this upcoming week. Um, this concept of amortality on the part of Harari, this idea that, that man can, in effect, become their own, their own God, it, it leads us, I think, all the way back into what's happening, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar in, in his time in Babylon. And interestingly, geographically, we can make the connection between Babel and Babylon. We're going to see that they are, in a very real sense, um, one in the same place. So let's, let's stop there for today, um, and we'll pick up with this next week. I do want to wish you a great week ahead. I thank you for being part of this podcast. It means so much to me. I think about you a lot. I'm praying for you and for your family. I thank you for praying for me and mine. So until next week, listen, God bless you and have a God-sized week. Mm -hmm.